welcome back to It's an Inside Job podcast. I'm your host, Jason Lim. Now, this podcast is dedicated to helping you to help yourself and others to become more mentally and emotionally resilient so you can be better at bouncing back from life's inevitable setbacks. Now, on It's an Inside Job, we decode the science and stories of resilience into practical advice, skills, and strategies that you can use to impact your life and those around you. Now, with that said, let's slip into the stream. Well, welcome back, dear listener. Thank you for joining me for a fresh week. I'm thrilled to have you joining me today for another insightful conversation. Today, I have the honor of introducing a remarkable guest who embodies the essence of creativity and transformation, both personal and professional spheres. My guest today, his name is Alistair Creamer, and he's embarked on an incredible journey that has taken him through diverse creative outlets, industries, and continents. Alistair's educational background was rooted in classical music, where he honed his skills with such instruments as the violin and the piano. However, at the age of 21, he made the bold decision to set aside these musical instruments, opening the door to a world of endless creative possibilities. Alistair's courage to explore various artistic expressions led him to acting, writing, painting, carpentry, ceramics, and even the culinary arts. He thrived on being a creative junkie, constantly seeking new avenues to channel his passions and imagination. But Alistair's creative pursuits extended beyond the realm of personal fulfillment. They eventually became the catalyst for his professional endeavors. Throughout his career, Alistair has traversed three distinct industries, the arts, higher education, and big business. After spending seven formative years at Unilever, he took a leap of faith and established his own company dedicated to helping leaders navigate the intricate landscape of organizational culture. Alistair firmly believes that culture is the paramount yet often underestimated factor in achieving success in any business. His unique expertise supports leaders in understanding and managing the profound impact of culture on their organizations. In 2012, Alistair co-founded Eyes Wide Open, a groundbreaking coaching program specifically designed to support individuals grappling with professional crossroads. This initiative provides invaluable guidance to those who find themselves at different stages of life, whether it be quarter-life crisis or individuals in their 50s yearning to make a profound impact. His work has also expanded to encompass the concept of finding personal purpose, helping individuals line their aspirations with their authentic selves. I feel incredibly fortunate to have Alistair Creamer join me today bringing his wealth of experience and his insights and his boundless creativity to the conversation. So without further ado, let's slip into the stream. Let's dive into an engaging discussion that will undoubtedly inspire us to embrace change, unleash our creativity, and find purpose in both our personal and professional lives. So now I'd like to welcome Alistair Creamer to the show. Thank you, Jess. Well, it's a great privilege to be here. Thank you. So, uh, Alistair Creamer, uh, 63 years old, 63 years young, mm. I should say. Um, I am a culture specialist. So, I operate in the world of corporate culture, mm. how you do what you do, how businesses do what they do, which is becoming the fastest rising mm. reason 
recruitment, if you like, uh, magnet for the next generation. They want to work in places that value them and that reflect their values. And and culture is, on one hand, it's kind of relatively simple, and on the other, it's quite complex. And I'm sure we'll we'll get into that a little bit. But my journey begins. Um, I was a musician, classical musician, my whole education. And then, it, just to give you the broad outline, I gave all that up at 21 mm. and moved into a lot of other different creative avenues. But broadly speaking, my career started at the BBC and I worked in various cultural organisations. Then I worked in higher education as dean of faculty at a university and then in big business. So it was business, arts, education. And that sort of trinity led me to this idea of actually how do businesses do what they do? I'm not sure back in 1999 when I joined Unilever, which is a really significant thing. And again, we might well talk about that in some depth, that I suddenly thought, ah, how you do what you do is called something and it's called culture. Mm. It is the culture, this communal shared thing that people participate in. And the more I got into that through Unilever, which is an extraordinary project, and then my own business beyond that uh, has led me to where I am today. I'm just curious, you know, from being a professional musician and then shifting into working with corporate culture, I know it's an evolution over time, but what made you shift from being a musician to to making the the evolutional step that you made? So I'm going to take you back. Uh, I'm 16 years old. I'm playing the violin, piano, singing. I'm a music scholar. I'm destined to go to university to read music. And it's a summer holiday. And my father and I are going for a walk. He's a doctor, lifelong doctor, sadly passed now, but... Mm. You know, he wanted to be a doctor from the age of nine. And he was a doctor and he stayed a doctor till he was 65, working in the National Health Service. And I remember this summer holiday, he said to me, you know, music seems to be your life and that's great. But, you know, there might come a time when it isn't. And if if that happens, that's absolutely fine. There's no pressure from us as parents. But whatever it is you turn your hand to, you must love it. That's the only thing. Love what you do. And I remember saying at 16, oh, no, no, Dad, don't worry. It's music. It's music all the way. And, of course, I then go to university. And at 21, I leave Durham University with my music degree. And I just, it it sounds dramatic. It wasn't. Mm. I just didn't pick up the instruments again. I just wanted to explore other art forms. And looking back to that 16-year-old lad, I think my father saw something in me, which was, yes, he likes music. Yes, he's good at it. But does he love it? Mm. Does he, I mean, you know, does he put his heart and soul into it? And maybe, because my father was a very, very smart man, does he express himself through music? Is that the channel? And so come 21, I have this little oh, I want to explore lots of other art forms. And it's become a theme for me, Jason, throughout the last 40 plus years, which is how am I choosing to express myself in life? 
And and creativity <clears throat> is a phrase that I think many people find a little limiting because they go immediately, well, I'm not creative. I'm not into the the arts or the high arts even. But I think you can be creative in any form of life. You know, you support a soccer team, you dress up, you've got the chance, you're on the terraces, you follow your team. It's a passion. And that, for me, you know, has a degree of creativity. You might be um, mushroom foraging or whitewater rafting. All of these have, have, you know, concepts of creativity, bringing different things together to create something new. And that's what I went on the journey of when I was about 21. And I, I think I should probably call myself a creative junkie because I've since then I've explored acting and directing and writing, which I still do to this day, and painting and drawing. That's how I relax. Um, ceramics, carpentry, cookery, cooked in a Michelin-starred kitchen. And now my great creative pursuit is gardening. I think it's, it's possibly the most creative I've been. Uh, And we've got this house with a a reasonably sized garden, about half an acre. Mm. And it's fabulous. I can't tell you. And one of the great joys for me is that my son who lives in London has also taken up gardening. Um, and he's now got completely obsessed and actually thinks I'm a complete amateur, you know, because he grows everything from seed. And I, I'm not quite as kind of hardcore as he is, but it brings me such joy. So there's that lovely little sort of, I don't, I guess you'd call it infinity loop of my dad saying to me as a 16-year-old, which releases me, I then go through my creative cycle, end up in gardening, which triggers something for my son. Well, I think creativity is a form of passion. As, as you said, whether it's following a football team, whether it is gardening, whether it's painting, whether it's whatever the hobby takes place, because it sounds like, you know, when I'm working with people, sometimes we try to understand what do they want to do. They're, they could be in the midst of a transformation. You've obviously transformed multiple times. And as you said, as a 16-year-old, you were gifted with music in the sense you, you could play multiple instruments. And that's what you were good at. But there's always been a sort of a confluence for me that I understood. And this is something my father taught me is that, you know, do what you're good at, do what you love and do what the world needs. Yes. You know, it wasn't so much his philosophy as may perhaps his cultural philosophy that he passed down to me. But what I hear from you is that you did, you were very good at music, but the passion kind of just, it just withered away and it, it was looking for something else. Some, some sort of creativity, curiosity took you down the road. And that, that is taking, it sounds like that's taking you across the spectrum of different, uh, yeah. creative, creative outlets. So maybe we could just fast forward to today, because I'd like to understand how that creativity is shown up in what you do today and how that creativity has created a spark in other people and their passion and such. Yeah. So, uh, broadly speaking, I do two things. So the larger part of my mm. uh, career and, and work today is about culture. Um, and so my business, Creamer and Millican, that's what we specialize in. Mm. And it requires a special leader, I think, to go, yeah, actually, culturally, I have an issue. Um 
very few businesses want to completely, you know, like a car, strip mm. it down to the sort of framework and then build it up again uh, uh, with culture. But often culture shows itself through an issue, a pain point. Mm. So it might be that people in these hybrid working days go, you know what, I'm, I'm suddenly realizing we're just working in silos. Mm-hmm. Um, because everyone is sort of working in their front rooms. We come together a little bit, but the office is a bit empty. And there's no sense of belonging in the teams. And there's no sense of sharing across the teams. Yes, we have databases and SharePoints, but there isn't that kind of sharing and learning going on. So I think many businesses would go, I have pain points. Are they cultural? And I would probably say to most of them, I think they are. Um, but let's have a look. So part of what we offer is this um, cultural strategy, if you like. So you've got your business strategy, but what's your culture strategy that sits around it? Your culture is there to deliver your strategy. Mm. It doesn't sit separately. It sits absolutely alongside it. So therefore, everything within your culture should be geared towards meeting your business or or goals or principles Mm -hmm. or commitments. And that means that things like values have to be aligned. That's fairly clear. But your behaviors must be very precise. And I think this is an area that many businesses struggle with. How do I convert a a value such as being boldness and being Mm -hmm. emboldened let's say, down to uh, a a specific behavior. And I'll give you an example in a minute. And then what's the signal or the signals that sit underneath that behavior Mm. that will drive it and embed it in order to meet your strategic goal? So come back to, let's say, being bold or being emboldened. One particular business I can think of translated that value down to the behavior, which was leave your comfort zone, which is lovely because everybody's comfort zone is slightly different. But if we can nudge you out of your comfort zone when you're working for us, mm-hmm. you know, don't go crazy. Don't go into your panic zone, but go into your learning zone, your stretch zone, your growth zone. That's what this business can do for you. And everyone's different. But when you're with us, leave your comfort zone. And that's a a, a beautiful example because it means everyone can interpret that personally. And it is also something you can measure because you start with, well, what's in my comfort zone? I might be very happy getting up in front of my team of 35 people and giving the quarterly update. Or I might be terrified of, of speaking in front of 10. So you know a little bit of these are some of the areas that I would love to explore to get out of my comfort zone. So moving down from a value to a specific behavior, and then, of course, the signals are, particularly around leaders, you've got to lead that. You've got to role model it. So the the leaders have to role model moving out of their comfort zone on a regular basis and for that to be articulated and recognized. So that, that is the main signal. Communication is another one. And I think a third is people have to see the value to themselves of any change that you might suggest. Mm -hmm. It's true in life. 
I want to lose weight. Okay. Well, if your doctor tells you, your partner tells you, your kid tells you, your mates tell you, but until you tell you, Mm. you know, I see the value to myself of losing weight. You probably won't do it or you won't stick to it. The same is true of any behavior or behavior change within your working environment. So being bold or emboldened, the key is for every individual to go, how will it benefit me to be more bold in my life? Well, you might be a football coach. You might be part of a choir. You might be, you know, a a big player in your local council. You might have children. And then you begin to go, oh, it actually might help because my kids will be growing up in a world full of even more uncertainty and confusion than I grew up. They're going to need to be bold in some of their choices. So if I can role model that for my kids or for my community in some way, um, that would be of great benefit to me and of those around me. And here I am in my business they're also encouraging me to be bold so I can learn, I can explore, I can experience what that might look like. And indeed, in moving out of my comfort zone, what do I discover about myself? So suddenly, this thing called behavior change makes sense for the individual, for the business, because we're on the same journey. So that's the large part of my life. Mm. The other part of my life Uh, professionally is coaching and I coach a lot of people individuals who are what I would call stuck at a crossroads and I've been coaching people in there who are still at school coming out of university this thing that we all now recognize called the quarter life crisis not the midlife crisis so these are the (laughs) late 20s early 30s who are going oh Work isn't all it's cracked up to be. Mm. They're at a crossroads. And then you have your midlifers and your early retirees or those who've been made redundant at 58 going, what do I do now? Mm. So I I think everyone has that possibility of being at a crossroads, being stuck, being lost, treading water, suddenly going, hmm. And so I do quite a lot of work with them. Um, just helping to get them unstuck. Mm. And often the way that the work that we do, which mirrors my, my corporate culture work is we talk about values a lot and not everyone has had a good look at what their values are. And we talk about purpose. And there's a marvelous exercise. I start most people off with on this one-to-one coaching which is because they come to me and they say, sure, oh, sure. a blank piece of paper. I don't know where to turn. I've got too many choices. I've got no choice. I said, okay, you're going to choose 10 people in your world, in your life, 10 people who know you really well. And you're going to ask them each for 10 words, 10 words of you at your best and strongest. And, That's all you have to do. They just have to send you 10 words. So you get 100 words. And what's so beautiful about this, Jason, is that from these 100 words, you see immediately repetitions. Hmm. So that's good. People, those 10 people around you are recognizing the same kind of thing. So it's sort of 
actually is pointing you towards these might be, A, of course, great strengths, but they might even be bigger than that. They might be values. You know, lots of people have picked up kindness. That might be a driving value for you. So number one is you get these themes and you get these repetitions and you get confidence in that. But number two is you might get some outliers. People, even those people who really know you and love you, write down something like, and this did happen to a client, Switzerland. And they went, hang on a minute. Someone written down <laughs> one of my top 10 things. It's Switzerland. And of course, he went back to this person and they explained it by going, well, look, do you know what? The way I see it is that you are a neutral territory. You're a sort of safe space. And people come to you because you hold that space for other people. And the only way I could express it was saying Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So in, it, it, what this exercise throws up every now and then are these amazing words, because that as a concept is as powerful as the re- repeated themes. But then there are two or three other areas, you know, what surprised you. But another good one is what's missing. Um, And I did this, repeated this exercise for myself recently, and I found that what was one of the thoughts was missing that I think is quite high in my uh, personality. So is that is this idea of being an ideas person? I can sit down, I believe, with almost anyone and listen to their story or their problem and and immediately have a thought that might unlock or or move something forward. And no one mentioned that. So it was kind of interesting to go, ah, okay, maybe I'm not known for that or I'm not making it clear enough or maybe actually, of course, I'm not that good at it. I think I'm good. Mm. So it's a beautiful exercise and from there of course the great thing about it jason is Mm. that you do not start with a blank page you start with a hundred words you whittle it down you've got themes you've Mm. got outliers you've got surprises and you've got gaps and and from there we work through to their purpose and their values and who's inspired them Mm. and the passions in life and the big thing about passions for me is that when working with younger people, a lot of them just go, I don't know, I haven't got a passion. And you need to tease it out of them. But the secret, I think, with a passion is if you feel you haven't got one, uh, and I can talk about passions for years. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, gardening is the perfect example, and there's lots of definitions, I think, around what a passion is. But the secret for these people, young people who haven't got a passion, is to be on the search, to be open Mm. to doing something new, to meeting other people, just to be curious, because it won't come to you. I think you need to find it most of the time. So, and I do see some people in life, and I'm sure you you can think Mm. of of a few, who just seem to be not curious. Mm. I think that's so hard. Because to turn, you know, someone around from, well, this is my world and don't really care what happens out there to I'm fascinated by what's happening out there Mm. expands their worldview and their possibilities. I I think it's fascinating what you're talking about, because when you're talking about company culture, you seek the values and the purpose. 
But when you, if we bring it down to the individual DNA of organizations, when you're working uh, with clients individually, you do this 10 words. Well, you get 100 words, adjectives, nouns, what have you, yeah. that you can play with, that you can sort out and figure out. So would you say the, the collection of values, once it's articulated and clear to that person, that it kind of forms their personal culture? Yeah. Yeah. And, and within an organization, um, one of the big learnings about this, and it is obvious the minute you just give it a moment's thought, is that culture is this yin and yang. It's on one hand, it's collective, communal, shared. We all participate in it. It's what brings us together. And on the other hand, it's deeply personal. You know, you're asking me to behave with greater uh, integrity and, you know, focus on the customer or whatever the values are. But you're asking me to do that. Mm. And what's more now is that as a bigger percentage of us are working more of the time remotely, I'm now doing it kind of completely on my own Mm. because our work life through the screen is so transactional it's an hour an hour half an hour and so on and we have an agenda and we have meetings and we have follow-up notes and so it's transactional. and and i think there's a danger here because i don't think work fundamentally is transactional i think work fundamentally is a collective experience but back to these hundred words i think you know, that it is an exercise that you would take a business through as it is an individual. And the trick is to make the individuals to sorry, to build the bridges between the individual's values and the business's values. So I'm not looking for a perfect match of three business values. And my top three values are this. Oh, they're exactly the same. It very rarely happens. But I might have a value around a sense of adventure. That's what I want to do as a family. We want to go and live in South America for six months and then come back and want to do something different with your schooling. And we go on great holidays. And the business might have a value around being bolder, emboldened. And you could see the connection between my idea of adventure, the business's idea of bold, and you build a bridge. It might be a a long bridge. It might be a rickety bridge, but you build the bridge so someone could go, Okay, I can see how I can express my sense of adventure in this business. This is my type of business. So at the values, the clearer they become, the easier it is for people to go, this is my kind of place. So if we if we look at the DNA, sort of the building blocks of what you're talking about, values. For me, values always being, as you said, a sense of adventure. It's it's an emotional state that we want to feel and experience. Mm-hmm. And the vehicle that takes us to that emotional state may be through our work, through our, our hobbies, such as yours yeah. is gardening, or for me, it's running and climbing, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's, that's what values are. I mean... How do you define values? Is it along the same avenue or is there a a much broader definition that we can work with to just sort of to, I guess, operationally define it so we understand what values are? Yeah, I, I think values represent who we are at our best. They also represent who we are at moments of huge decisions and crises. 
um, well, big decisions. Let's leave it at that. And um, values are those huge overarching uh, or almost principles that define how we are choosing to live our life. Now, we are all born with a set of values because whoever, whatever family unit you were brought up with, there would have been values there. Might be we all come together and eat around the table. We uh, go to church together. We uh, don't say this sort of thing to our parents or our grandparents, or this is how we welcome people into our house. And there are ways in which this family culture has operated. Mm. And as you ladder those up, you get to the values. When you get into your, let's say, your teenage years, that's when I think you begin to start thinking independently and you go, well, what's becoming really important for me as a 13, 14, 15 year old is, let's say, sustainability and living more lightly on this planet. That might not be quite so important to my parents, but it's really important to me because I'm learning it at school and and Mm. it's an expression of who I am and I care deeply about this. So at that age, you begin to go, actually, this idea of, you know, uh, sustainable living Mm. is a value for me. It might not be for my parents, but that's okay because you're just moving, gradually getting that sort of Mm. independence from home. And then as you get into your 20s and you're at university, you might get another value around LGBT or whatever it is that's important to you and is an expression of who you are. One of the things I always say about values is I think values bring people together. That's how we kind of gravitate towards our partners in life, because we share values of loyalty or love. Or I think one of my values, for instance, I have three big lead values. One is around creativity. Um, And I I have that because obviously I've I've lived that. Uh, So uh, and that's a great litmus test for any value can you honestly tell me stories about how you're living it? Mm. Can you point immediately to stories? So I feel that I do live creativity, but I do feel that my my whole work is around unlocking creativity and creative ideas and new learning in people, mm. whether that's individually or collectively within the business world. And, and Picasso uh, had this beautiful quote. I hope I can remember it faithfully. It said, He said that every child is born an artist. It's staying an artist when we grow up. That's the challenge. And we recognize that. Sometimes it gets knocked out of us at school, maybe at home, maybe as you begin to gravitate towards an industry that is not, in inverted commas, creative, you know, and then we lose touch with it. Um, And I think that's part of the problem. I find that I'm uh, speaking to people, you know, interestingly, I often coach quite a few architects in that um, quarter-life crisis. They've hit 30 and they're going, oh, it's taken me seven years to graduate and I'm still doing the doorknobs for public toilets and I'm not really (laughs) energised by this. (laughs) Where's the creative moment for me? Mm. And and so, you know, you've got to be careful with that. But broadly speaking, I I think I'm I'm here to unlock 
people's creativity. So that's a huge value for me. And another one for me is energy and vitality. I get a lot of energy from speaking with you and with other people. And that's part of my deal, which is I put energy out there, I receive energy back, and then that encourages me to give more. So it's a virtuous circle um, as as we talk. And, and the best pieces of work I do contain that. Uh, the best clients contain that. The best one-to-one coaches contain that. Uh, you know that old phrase of radiators and drains. Some people give out energy, our radiators, and other people suck energy. And they're hard. Very well said. Very well they're said. Hard to be in. Um, and a third one, very quickly, uh, of my values is around home and a sense of home. And I know this is true. Obviously, through my home life is is critical, and the garden is part of the home, but. Pre-pandemic, when we had offices, um, different offices in London, we always created those offices out of a flat. So in the flat, there was a big room where we would all work around the table with a kitchen off it. We could cook together, bring clients in, cook for the clients. There was a bedroom down the corridor. And if someone needed to sleep over because there was a late something, they could do that. We had a shower, we, all this sort of stuff. It was a home from home. And I just worked under the principle that if we're spending time together, maybe 40, 50 hours a week, mm. pre-pandemic, remember, um, you know, it, it should feel like it's in a place of comfort. Mm. And so this idea of a home and that we were a family and we ate together was really important to me. I, I find that fascinating what you're talking about because, you know, values, as you said, these are things that drive us. They create who we are. We become our values per se, and we're constantly in pursuit of that. And those values, we never really achieve it. It's constantly moving on the horizon as we as we evolve, as you have from a musician to the various artistic and uh, creative outlets you've had through your, your varied career. If I just come back to it, you know, for me, when I see the real person comes out when they are under stress and strain, because when everything is great and it's blue sky, then we can show up at our best. But what I find that what is, what is the true litmus test for an individual, an organization or team is when they are facing uninvited uncertainty and change, when there's stress and strain that really pulls at the, the individual or the organization. And then you truly see the metal of who they are, how they show up. What is your experience when it comes to, because let me rewind a little. So, you know, cultures, we can talk about a company culture or team culture and such and form what we want. But I, I think what truly, how we truly show up as an organization or individuals when the, the you know, the gun or the heat is turned up per se, and then the real person or the real organization comes out and you can truly see what maybe the values are. I mean, what do you do in those cases? Because a lot of us can scramble, but some organizations are very adept, very skilled at moving through these kind of changes or crises or uncertainties. I was wondering if you could speak a little to that, Alistair. Hmm. Well, I've got a personal story around that, but I'll, I'll just start with the collective. Please. So the thing about for us about culture is that it has to be adaptive and flexible. And everyone talks about 
I really want to be authentic at work. I want to be in a business that respects and values me for who I am. And that that is certainly one of the keys. So, um, you know, that's why I think young people joining the workforce are as much interviewing the organization mm. as the organization are interviewing them. Is this a place I can be myself? Mm. And and back to, to, to your original question, can I express who I am in all my ups and downs and glories and so on? Because we learn more through life, I'm a passionate believer in that, in this, in those moments of crisis and challenge than we do in when life's going smooth and the waters aren't choppy and so on. You learn more. You learn more about who you are, how you're coping. You learn more about your values, your lovely phrase about how, you know, we're always learning to live our values. And it's in those moments of crisis and they could be personal and they could be professional and i think a lot of what's happened th- as a result of the pandemic in many ways what's hastened it is the, the this relationship between work and life in some strange way has got even closer work you know we used to talk about i work to live i live to work but work worth living for it's a really kind of interesting mantra. The two things are symbiotic. Um, it's not just a nine to five job and I'm just not working 24 mm. seven, but it's, it's fulfilling me in two ways. So businesses must be agile, flexible, adaptive. And that means that cultures constantly need refreshing and looking after and catching up. Catching up with the people. We've had this moment of, uh, you know, resignation crisis and people revolving doors, people flying in, flying out. And and I think there is a dissatisfaction with the lack of clarity. People want clarity around what a business stands for. And I think some businesses are nervous to be really clear about that. I Lots of reasons for that, but I guess that might be something about, you know, cultures are always, mm-hmm. always leader-led, and then they're people-driven. So it's a dance. So if you imagine a top half, and a, the yin and the yang, if you like, the top half are the leaders must kick it off and lead it, and then it will be people-driven. So they'll then lead it once the leaders have kicked off and then it comes back again and the leaders will go, well, we're going to refresh it. We're going to tweak. We're going to look at this. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, it's after six months, maybe it's a year Mm -hmm. and then back to the people to live it. So you give them the space, the leaders let go and let the people run, run the factory as it were. So that's a a very important dance. And then you've got this dance between the collective and, and the personal. So I'll just tell you a, particular story for me about challenge please um so i was married and uh, my first wife and uh who's australian and we separated when my son was born ollie was born um at two and she took him back to australia so there we go um the deal was i would visit him every six months and he would visit me every six months um three weeks each slot we he and i spoke 
on the phone every Sunday. And when he was two, three, four, it was very, very short. And then gradually these phone calls got longer and longer. And then we were speaking for an hour, um, you know, when he was about six, I think, seven. And we'd just chat away about nothing. It was on the phone. It wasn't Skype in those days or it wasn't Zoom, basically didn't exist in those days. It was just us chatting. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I just instinctively thought, I've got to do this. Fast forward, he then wants to come across to England twice a year rather than once a year. And then he comes for a year of schooling, age 15. Then he comes for his gap year, age 18. And then after one year of university back in Australia, he jacks it in and says, I want to come and live in London, which he does. And for the last 10 years, he's been here. So it's been an amazing journey. And when I look back on this, I kind of go, what has this taught me? from the ease of sitting in my chair, looking back on it today. Um, I didn't have this plan at the beginning. I can tell you that, but I've played this long game, which is I've just thought I've just got to be there for him. I can't be there on a day-to-day basis. I'm there every week and then just playing this long game, which of course in an age of short termism is quite a rare thing. So one of my learnings I try to suggest to others is where's your long game? So, of course, that might be in your partnership, your key relationship. That might be in your work. It might be in your great passion, hobby, faith, whatever it is. Where's your long game? Um, The other thing was that Ollie uh, got really you know, interested in England, uh, which he'd known as a baby but not really remembered. And so as he came back each time, welcoming him back, what I decided to do was just to keep a note of, of tiny, tiny little things. And you referred to this book earlier, and I've, I've just sort of written a short book of memories. I mean, they're sort of prose poems, lyrics, tiny short things of tiny incidents that happened. And of course, they were incredibly important to me because um, I was only with him for three weeks or we were only on the phone for 30 minutes one and he might have said something really funny and I just noted it down and then I pulled them together and now I've just uh, published them um, this year, earlier this year. But to you, one of your great themes, Jason, which I know about this podcast is it taught me so much about resilience about the nature of resilience comes back to the long game and it comes back to your values. What do you care about? And obviously your son who for whatever reason you might not be living with or your daughter or could be other siblings and so on, you know, they are very, very important to you. So of course you'll go to the ends of the earth to find some connection and Australia is halfway around the world. So it was little phone calls, those visits in which I tried to record as many of those tiny little things that probably wouldn't be worth a photograph. So resilience, the long game. And and he taught me how to be a better parent. So it was that acknowledgement of, oh, my word, has this set of circumstances of him being with his mother halfway around the world given me an insight into how to be a better parent. And I think he taught me how to be a better parent. So in those moments of crisis, uh, or challenge, let's call it, 
I think he taught me about a, a creative way, a new way of being a, patient, a parent. He taught me about energy. He taught me because we're on the phone or, you know, being consistent with him when we're together on pacing my energy. And then this sense of home that, you know, we would talk about something and nothing on these long, hour-long phone calls. But it was often about the posters in his room. What had he got something stuck under his bed? You know, what did he want to do? And I remember him reorganising his room, you know, when I was across in, in Australia one time visiting him. And we just said, let's completely reorganise your room. So, he said, you can remember it the next time you call me. In part one of our conversation, Alistair and I delved into the fascinating topic of company culture and its impact on organization. He emphasized that culture is at its core. It's about how we do what we do. He specializes in helping companies address cultural issues that manifest themselves sometimes as pain points, such as the challenges of hybrid working arrangements where people may feel a lack of belonging and experience siloed work environments. Our discussion centered around the importance of building a cultural strategy that aligns with a company's business strategy. And this involves ensuring that values are well-defined and behaviors are precise. The challenge lies in translating broad values into specific behaviors and identifying the underlying signals that drive and embed those behaviors to meet strategic goals. We explored the key factors that facilitate this transition from values to behaviors, which include role modeling by leaders, effective communication, and enabling individuals to see the personal benefits of embracing organizational change. People naturally ask themselves, how will this value benefit me in my life for them to truly embrace and uphold it? Alistair also shared his expertise as a coach, particularly in guiding individuals who find themselves at a crossroad or questioning their purpose. He described an exercise where he asked clients to seek feedback from 10 people about 10 words that best describes them at their best moments. By analyzing their responses, patterns and themes emerge, allowing clients to discover their values, their passions, and their purpose. However, Alistair emphasized that the clients themselves must do the heavy lifting in terms of having curiosity and exploration and self-discovery. Returning to the concept of culture, Alistair highlighted its dual nature. On one hand, he says, it's collective and it's shared, it's bringing people together, while on the other hand, it's deeply personal. The challenge is to bridge the gap between individual values and organizational values, rather than seeking a perfect alignment. Values represent our best selves and guide us during significant decisions and crises. When people share values, a strong sense of unity emerges. Alistair also emphasized the importance of storytelling to demonstrate how individuals live their values. The resilience of a company lies in its culture's ability to be adaptive flexible. This necessitates ongoing refreshment and diligent care. Crucially, it means staying connected with the people within the organization as they see clarity on the business's core values and purpose. Ultimately, cultures are shaped by leaders and driven by the people. Emphasizing the importance of nurturing a culture that aligns with the collective vision and inspires all involved. So now let's slip back into the stream with the final part of my conversation with Alistair Creamer. Earlier, 
Kayla, you talked about how crisis and challenge where we can learn more about ourselves. You yourself found a way of equanimity. Some people, they are emboldened and they move into the storm. Others shy away and back out and fall behind the, the walls of protection. Yeah. As you said, when you work with culture, you try to create an adaptable, flexible culture in order to face adversity, change, and what have you. Speaking to individuals, how do you help individuals who sort of fall back to self-criticism, self-doubt, or shying away from stepping up to the challenge? And how do you encourage them through values, through finding purpose, through culture, personal culture, to move into a difficult situation or a life change? I think anyone will move into a difficult, will face up to a challenge mm. if it truly matters to them. So here's the question. What truly matters to you? Is it the environment? Is it your family? Is it, you know, politics? Is it whatever it is? What what truly drives you because when you can discover that and it's all linked isn't it jason you know your your passions in life you know probably point you towards what you care most deeply about what you're going to give time to what you lose yourself in which will probably be in and around there will be some aspect of what are those values that sit at the heart of who you are when you find those you will be able to face any kind of challenge. So let me give you another example. It's a personal example, and it's so. Uh, but I'm very happy to share it. So I, at th- when Ollie was born on the fourth of August, 1990. Two days before that, on the second of August, 1990, I discovered out of the blue that I was a type one diabetic, <laughs> right? I mean, 48 hours before my son was born. Uh, and then, you know, my birthday was soon after that. So my life within about four days, my life had turned itself upside down. Now, fine. There we go. No history of diabetes in my family. Uh, it was just one of the cards I was handed. So, you know, what you do is, well, sorry. What I did, which I learned from my father, was to be, in a sense, philosophical. I can't fight it. It is what it is. So let's get on now. Um, And I'm saying that as if it was an easy journey. It was not an easy journey Mm -hmm. uh, in those years. It took me to really, really accept what was going on. But I look back on this now, 30 plus years down the line, and what I've discovered, what I've done, I think, with diabetes is flip it. It saved my life. It's a good thing in my life. Mm. It has helped me understand my health much better. Absolutely. I understand that if I were to eat a donut, what would happen to my sugars? I can't rely on my body to level it all up, which is what most people do. I have to really think through stuff. So it's taught me about myself. It's taught me about responsibility. And it's an ongoing journey. I have to be responsible for my health. I can't rely on other people, although I do occasionally, as kind of many diabetics 
do. And, you know, I also know that there's a slight ticking clock going on because, you know, my immune system and so on is ever so slightly compromised. And, I, you know, I'm, I may well not live into my 90s, mm-hmm. uh, but boy, I'm going to have a good go. So uh, and, uh, you know, 10 years into having diabetes, I thought, I'm going to run the marathon. So I, I I ran the marathon, the London Marathon in 2020. So the kind of the, the Millennium Marathon, which was amazing, got round under four hours, which I was very proud of. Never will run it again. <laughs> Done it. <laughs> but it's you know these these things, positives and let's call them negatives, teach you about yourself if you are open. Mm. So the secret you know, about facing change and facing challenge is firstly, have we kind of got to the essence of who you are? And that's a process of constant conversations, understanding your values, understanding your passions, understanding beliefs as well. I think beliefs are a little bit more transitory than values. I think values, when you go, ah, yeah, that's me, that's kind of a value and values take a while to arrive and then they could hang around forever or they take a while to disappear because suddenly you realize actually it's not so much about the environment that I care about. Beliefs on the other hand, I think come quite quickly and can disappear quite quickly. I believe I'm lucky until I don't win the lottery for the fourth week running. And then I believe I'm unlucky or I got knocked off a bike. So I, I believe that beliefs differentiate us. And values unite us. So that's why I keep coming back to values. And you might argue a a sophisticated version of your values is then to go, what is my purpose in life? What have I, this is a very big phrase, what have I been put on this planet to do? Do I believe that? That I've been put here for a purpose? I think I've been put here for a purpose, which is to unlock people's creativity. Those people I meet and can work with that are within my widest of circles. Can I help some of them unlock their creativity? Because when I can, whatever that creativity looks like, if I can help unlock it in the person, they will be a bigger version of themselves. Wherever they choose to take themselves. And I think it comes back to what you said, you know, you know, younger people, we were young at some point, you know, earlier in the game, but it is, it is about exploring for some fortunate people. It just, it just lands in their lap and they, you know, because of parenting or because of experience or what have you, but for a majority, it is about having that sense of adventure, exploring and being curious to try to find that, you know, I, one of the values that I, I kind of share with you, you haven't articulated so, but it's it, to be in the service of others. What you do is to be in service of others. And I have that where you may have the belief that, you know, you, you landed on the planet and you were designed for some sort of purpose. For me, the universe is more sort of chaotic and I had to go find my way. I had to cultivate and, and, and to curate my own sense of purpose. But we lead, it brings us to the same place. And again, it's the values that draw us together. But yeah. again, beliefs can be, they, they, they are quite ephemeral, if I can call it that. And that, that's, that's what separates us differently. But I can see what we talk about is to be in the service of others when it comes to values and purpose. 
And so your experience yourself, but it was through your journey, Alistair, that you actually cultivated your own sense of purpose because you had to experience and discover different things to be able to come to be cognizant as to what you can bring to the world and what the world needs from you. Is that what I understand your your Yes, and and I'm I don't want to over egg it in that you know it, this was an uh, I mean we talk a lot about journeys don't we mm. but this really was a, a, a journey of discovery and I, I wouldn't even acknowledge that I set out wanting to go on that journey mm. and to discover and oh here we are I'm fifty two and I've discovered my kind of calling. Um. Uh, you know, I think I'm still on a journey. My, you know, so to contrast it with my dad, at nine he wanted to be a doctor. At nineteen he was a doctor, mm. really, really young and brilliant. And then he was a doctor for all his life. I, I'm almost, you know, I, I, I have arrived at the place I think I need to be, which is creativity and culture. Mm. That's where I think I can make the greatest contribution. But as I'm still discovering stuff about that i'm still discovering a huge amount about myself uh, and what i'm strong at and what i'm vulnerable at and what are those triggers um so i hope that i i still have a good slug of on one hand vulnerability and on the other humility I come across as someone with a lot of confidence but we do a program within our culture work called Difference Makers, who are, it, it's a lovely piece of work and it's related very directly to culture. It's about, you know, medium ranking, maybe lower ranking people in large organizations who affect huge change. There's something about their DNA and their makeup that they come into an organization and their antenna are up. They might be in finance, they might be marketing, they might be anywhere. And they just go, why is the business doing this like this? Why doesn't it do it in a certain way? And of course, as young, very young people coming into organizations, will they will have technology at their fingertips and they'll be going, why do you use all these old Excel spreadsheets when there are all these amazing tools in the cloud now, which could revolutionize the way you do your finance. And it takes a 26-year-old to kind of come in and challenge the whole system. We've all done our quarterly accounts through Excel spreadsheets, and we're going to continue that because that's what we know. And these 26-year-olds are going, yep, well, you're missing a trick. Let me explain. So here's what these difference makers do is they, they have these big enthralling ideas and then in a genius way instinctive way they make them happen they just through design thinking often it's those techniques that not always they they know they're using them but they'll start small they'll get people around them they'll do a little prototype a little test over here in their own time and just go does this make more sense than what we're doing over here then they'll approach their boss and go you know, I've got this idea. What do you think? Could you give me a couple of hours a week just to work on this? Mm. And before you know it, they have changed the reporting structure. They've come forward with a whole new way of recruiting people from completely different um, aspects of society. Um, and, or you know, we spoke to a chaplain in a hospital who flipped the whole role of what a chaplain could be within a hospital. And uh, th these people exist 
One of the challenges is that these people, and this is the cultural link, often don't see the light of day. Now, it could be because the business culture is in a certain way. It might be that there is not a culture of permission. They might talk it, but actually they don't want it to happen. Or their line managers just said, just get on with the day job, all right? Enough of these big ideas, just enough. So we know that there's a lot of these difference makers that just get squashed. However, with the right culture of permission and openness and, you know, actually we're really interested in your ideas because this could help us innovate, then these people thrive. And that is a cultural distinction. Now, if you said to everyone, business leader, are you getting the most out of your bright, young, new recruits? Mm -hmm. Some of them are called high potentials. And actually, we would contest that you're not. They would get very, very worried at that. So the way into this is, are you getting the most out of your brightest? Mm. How could you get more? Is there a cultural barrier or sleeping blanket over the organization that's just not allowing these people the room to breathe? And therefore, are you ready to accept their ideas? And off you go. And this kind of segues to something that I found intriguing in our pre-interviews where, where you know, Kramer and Milliken, your company, uh, that you've co-founded, you talk about shaping your signals. And so, quote, yeah. you said, to understand a culture and how to shift it, you need to appreciate the ecosystem and hierarchy of signals that communicates to people what's really important and therefore drives their behavior. Yeah. I was wondering if you could maybe articulate or elaborate a little more on shaping your signals yeah. and how that relates to culture. So we believe there is a – so signals are essential. Just, let's just start there. Mm. So if you're saying, I'd like everyone here to be more entrepreneurial, off you go. You know, it will not work. It's too broad uh, as a behavior. And there is nothing to back it up. Okay. So again, culture is collective. It's felt individually. So mm. you need signals. And particularly in these hybrid remote days, you need even stronger signals. Now, signals can come in all shapes and sizes. There is a, a, an interesting French phrase for uh, not just French businesses, but it's, uh, it, some organizations are like this. And it goes, le non dit, the unsaid. So um, some cultures, some signals are so sort of out there like stars in the firmament. Um, just, you know, they're there. You'll pick them up. As you go through your daily work, you will see them, you will feel them. But it is the unsaid, the unwritten, the un, you know, felt in a way. They're just there mm. in the background. Now, that's quite clever on one hand, and it's pretty dangerous on another. People, particularly in these hybrid days when they're spending less time together, physically together, you've got to make these clearer. But Number one signal, and I do think there's a hierarchy, certainly at this stage, is role modeling. So it, the onus comes immediately down to the leaders. We've agreed that our behavior, back to my earlier example, let's say, is leave your comfort zone. Right. George, you're head of marketing. Philip, you're head of supply chain. What are you going to, to do on a consistent and constant basis? basis. Simon Sinek always talks about the big challenge of leadership is consistency. Mm. 
So you can't have three of your senior leaders doing this and three not doing it, going, I don't really believe this. Because, it, of course, think about it. It sends signals that there is a couple of ways in which you could live this culture. You could either live it or not. And that's fine. And, of course, you're going, no, 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 no. That will drain the energy because some people will be going, do I look left or do I look right? No, no, no. We're in this together. So we're going to leave our comfort zones, or, you know, let's say, yes. in, in our own ways. So role modeling is essential. So therefore, any piece of culture work we do, we start with the leadership mm-hmm. and we work with the leadership to go, what does leaving leaving your comfort zone look like to you? How will you do it? How will it show up every week in your weekly call? How will you refer to it? And then what are the things that you might be doing that you won't articulate, i.e. you don't need to bang a drum for you leaving your comfort zone, but people will see it and go, oh, that was really good. Because I saw, you know, um, Claire say that this was really uncomfortable for her, um, having to report some bad news or, or whatever it was. Um, and and you kind of go, oh, OK, so she's living it. So number one, that number two is, of course, you have to articulate it. I think the non D, the unsaid is one way of doing it. But honestly, you, you've got to say this is what we mean by, um, you know, being emboldened. And we think this, this value of leaving your comfort zone is a really powerful one because it's individual, uh, but it can be collective and you can interpret it your own way. Uh, and this is, by the way, what we're doing and how we're doing it, says the leadership. Then I think the third way is what I said earlier about people have to see the value to themselves. The fourth way um, is then experiencing it. So I think teams need to get together. These are, again, very clear signals. Teams need to get together and say, what does leaving our comfort zone look like for us in finance? What does it look like for us in R&D? What does it look like for us in human resources? And individually, what does it look like for us? And then collectively. So our interpretation Mm. of leaving your comfort zone looks like this. Mm. It does the job. And I think right now, leaving our comfort zone, let's say in human resources, we know we need to broaden how we recruit a much more diverse workforce. Mm. So this is the moment at which we're going to do some, let's say, not uncomfortable things, but we're going to stretch ourselves. We're going to grow ourselves by doing things we've never done before. There'll be uncertainty, but and we're going to accelerate that process. So this is all of us. And what's our contribution in leaving our comfort zone? So all of us leave our comfort zones. So it's the discussion, the interpretation, and then the experience of doing it. Now, leaving your comfort zone, sorry, a signal mm. can be a tiny little thing and a grand gesture and everything in between. So I remember one person talking to me about the signals they led in their business. One of their values was around approachability and friendliness. And so what they did was they ensured that everyone in marketing on their phones personally recorded their phone message you know, in the old days when we did that kind of thing, just to go, hi, it's Lucy here. 
I'm so sorry I can't be here, but I promise you I'll pick this up. So don't worry, um, and I'll get back to you within so much time. Thanks so much for calling. Just leave a quick message, and I'll get back. You know, it was approachable and friendly. It was a tiny little thing. But that's these are the sorts of signals. And I think mm-hmm. detail is really important. I mean, it's sort of a, that's been my big learning from my time with Ollie and writing these sort of lyrics and little poems. It's all about tiny details and realizing how impactful they are. And of course, how they are picked up by other people. They become really key. So that would be my first trawl through that until I would get to an organization. And one of the things we always discuss in a culture conversation, cultural strategy conversation, because every business feels this, is what is not to be touched or changed? You know, there are some things, founder-led business might go, our founder's mentality, this idea of excellence, of mastery. We mustn't ever lose sight of that. That's who we were. We've been bought by this large organization, but we mustn't lose it as we go forward. And you go, right, that's fine. We'll work with that. We might refresh that. Might You know, what does mastery look like in 2024? Mm. But, you know, we honor that. But then there are some things that they go, well, we've held on to this thing of customer service but you know actually our model's changing and is that is that the right thing Mm -hmm. so we we then have this what's in and what's out what's up for grabs and conversation uh and and but it's being truly um it's honoring the past and i think that conversation is is a very positive one for businesses to have because Every business says we mustn't lose sight of this. Because I think what you're saying is very important because, as you said, it's the, it's the teams not always talking about the business, but maybe how we are conducting the business. Like when one company sometimes acquires another company, there may be a little bit of a cultural clash. And the question is, what should we keep? And what yeah. should we leave? I can understand you keep certain things like Christmas parties, for example, out of tradition, right? Yeah. But other things may have to justify his existence because maybe the ecosystem has evolved and we have to evolve with that ecosystem. But how often should a team come back to the values and talk about how it shows up operationally from week to week? I mean, in a formal way, I think certainly, you know, you come back every six months and just go, are these is third value really working for us? Is this interpretation of what we mean by, you know, leave your comfort zone working for us or not? And one of the mechanisms for that, Jason, we Mm. suggest is that within every team, there will be what we call a culture champion. Someone who just gets it, who just loves culture. Mm. And culture champions are often... You know, they could be quite, let's say, junior within the team. They don't need to be the boss. In fact, they don't, they shouldn't be the boss or or the line manager. They should be someone in the, you know, middle of the team. And these people are there for a number of reasons. One is to, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, they're given the permission to go, did we discuss our values or our home life or whatever it is that we've said we would on our weekly town hall call. Have we done it this week? Have we given the 10 minutes? No, we didn't. Why? Well, there's a bit of a crisis. Okay, but we're not going to lose it now, are Mm. we? 
we said this. So the culture champion keeps the team up to the mark. And they've got that sort of get out of jail free card from from the line manager because he or she will say, you're going to keep us up to the mark, number one. Number two, what culture champions do is then they, and we help them do this, co-create the measures. So how am I going to measure whether we're living the culture, whether we're living the values, whether we're living what we said we would do? What, what are those markers? And so thirdly, a, a linked to that, they then, you know, you've got to celebrate in some way. <clears throat> There's that lovely idea around how do you create habits in your life well one of the ways to create a new habit is you've got to have a little trigger a signal and you could do the habit and then you've got to have a little celebration afterwards to go i did it and i did it tomorrow and i did it the next day and, you know whatever it is so the same is true of, of how you live within work a behavior re- your desire is that this new behavior becomes the norm this is now how we treat each other. This is now how we work with customers. So we've got, I mean, I love your your thought, your personal uh, value of, of being of service. Um, and, you know, so are we being of service? Yes, we are, because we got this feedback. We've got this great email. We've got this great voicemail. We've got this little film from a client, and we celebrate that. It's working, guys. It's, in fact, one of the measures is to share how we are touching other people's lives. So I think these culture champions, rather than the board or the uh, line manager, the team boss, if you like, become critical in how you regulate and sustain cultural change. You know, I I love the idea of having an advocate that part of their mandate is to be a cultural champion. Because as as you said, at the end of the day, culture is about consistency. It's about a certain behavior. And if you have a a cultural advocate per se, he or she becomes the signage. They become who they speak to it on a weekly basis and make people cognizant. And when we become cognizant of a specific behavior we want to instill within an organization or a team culture, it's just that when we become cognizant, it means we become, we talk about the, the, the benefits of this behavior and how it shows up and we can see the action and becomes very clear. It's not just ideas, but it's actions that define who we are, right? That's what people judge our, our reputation, our, our, our value of social currency. Yes. And so these cultural advocates, or I'm sorry, cultural champions, yes. they kind of point out, highlight the behaviors that really bond us together or whatever it is. Yeah. And then slowly over time, this becomes habitual. We don't even think about it. It's just something unconsciously we become competent at because these cultural advocates. And I think it's so important that we give gravitas to these individuals where it's not just, okay, this is a nice fine thought. Okay. You can do this, but it actually has significant weight in an organization. Just to add to that. And again, it comes back to your sort of central theme of, of um, resilience Mm. and resilience building. One of the things that people pick up on culture, whether it's cultural champions or the rest of the people in the team is this idea of intensity. It might be that the line manager does it once a week, something like that, maybe twice. But if they do it constantly, Mm. so consistently, 
constantly and with intent, people will pick that up. Wow. So and the thing is, then it gives people not just permission, but confidence to do the same themselves, because I can see my boss going on his or her journey with this idea of leaving, stretching themselves. Mm. So leaving the comfort zone, actually, that I don't like that language, but constantly learning, constantly growing, same thing, just it's kind of different semantics. Okay, that's interesting. So she is constantly growing, constantly learning. I should do the same. So and and this word of intensity is 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 really picked up. And so it's a big call on leaders. It's a big call on line managers. You know, suddenly, if you like, you are being parents to the rest of your team because they will look to you to how to behave. Well, I think a lot of what you're talking about, I mean, with your decades of experience, you're giving nuts and bolts methodology. If leaders or whatever, the heads of the company truly want to shift the culture, even if it's just a tweak or if it's a complete 180, yeah. what you're giving is proven tools. You know, it's giving these cultural champions, these advocates, the, 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 the gravitas and the mandate to do this. And this is just one way of doing it. If we look on the other side of this coin, what are some of the avoidable mistakes that leaders make about culture? Quite, I think, an easy hit list. Um, culture, uh, number one, can't be managed or doesn't need to be managed. That's, well, I, I think you've, you slightly kind of fall off the cliff there because what you do is you allow permission for several cultures to be lived. Mm-hmm. And when you get that, people's attention and energy is pulled every which way because it's okay to be this, it's okay to be that, it's okay to be the other. Um, And so that's when you don't manage it. Can it be managed? Absolutely. So, but there are some leaders out there who believe it should just find its own level. and, And that's fine. Culture is there to deliver your strategy. It doesn't operate separately to the strategy. It operates alongside it. So every time we do a kind of culture strategy thinking, we start with, let's have a look at your culture. At your, uh, sorry, at your strategy. What's the business strategy? Because we'll build the culture around that and the behaviors to drive that. So that's a second thought. The third thought is that it's it's not leaders' responsibility. It's a people thing. I'll hand it over to HR mm-hmm. and they will drive it. Um, absolute fool's errand. Um, you've got to have the leaders living it, talking about it, being consistent about it. Otherwise, it, you're throwing money away. So it's a waste of time. Um, I think the next one is this link between your values specific behaviors, very specific signals. Signals embed your behaviors, Mm -hmm. which drive your values and drive your business. Unless you do that work, it all becomes a bit vague. I'd love you all to make a difference. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? We all want to make a difference too, but that's a kind of strategic intent. It's sort of something up in the cloud almost, but it's not a behavior. And then, you know, how are you embedding that behavior through a signal? I think the next one is they think the culture 
is a corporate thing. It's a business thing. You walk in and you might in, in some way just lock into what we do as a business day in, day out. And to a degree, it is that because culture is what is shared. But if you miss out the personal side, the personal stories, the personal links, you know, br- allowing the person to bring in their own values, find that connection with the company values, and then live a meaningful working day, they're missing out. They're missing out. So that that would be another one. Um, what would be a final one? Gosh, I think uh, cultures are living things. So to your point earlier, uh, it's not one and done. You have to look after this thing. It's a bit like a garden. It's a bit like cooking. You don't leave stuff on the stove uh, forever and it's just done. You just need to bring it together and and change that. With the garden, I'm looking out of my garden now. You know, it's just a constant uh, conversation with nature and with seasons and, and it, it, you know, all around me. Uh, there's always stuff to be done. And the same is true of culture. And I think the final thought I would say is, is you've got to have your finger on the pulse. Now, that might be you as a business talking to people, you talking to your line managers who talk to the people, you talking to the cultural champions. And so you're constantly checking in because culture, if it isn't already, is becoming the differentiator for businesses, for young people, Gen Z at the moment, but soon it'll be Gen Alpha Mm -hmm. who are coming into the workspace. This stuff, does this business reflect who I am? Can I be who I want to be? Do we have shared values? Is becoming their choice Mm -hmm. and their de facto choice. I'm not just going to work for anyone. So if you don't get on the bandwagon of this, how important this is, I think you're going to find it really hard. Or you just pay people loads of money. But as we know from Daniel Pink, thank you, Daniel Pink, that's not what really drives, really drive. People want to be paid well, but, you know, what drives them is purpose and mastery and autonomy. Be given the space to express myself. I think the string through here is is constantly coming back to values. If you understand the values, you articulate those values, you 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 operationally define those values, whether at a personal individual level, team or organizational level, that leads to purpose. But as you said before, sometimes we need to move into change and change is about learning. It's about exploring about adventure understanding pushing the limits to understand i mean those sound like very simple trite terms but truly if you experience that if you actually live everything that you've talked about pushing yourself i think regardless of mindset if you're young physically or young of mindset this is what helps i i think allows us to build well-being and resilience and equanimity in in all its forms Alistair, I'm very cognizant of the generosity of your time and we're coming close to the end of the conversation. Is there anything else you would like to suggest an advice or tip that you would like to live with our listeners today? Oh, well, well, there's one that's just occurred to me in our conversation, actually, Um, Jason, which is about the power of listening. Now, I was fortunate enough to be a musician uh, up until the age of 21. And then I put those instruments away and I broadly speaking, haven't touched them since Uh, I'm not a musician today, Mm -hmm. 
but I'm still musical. And I love listening to music. But what that great slug of education did for me was to help me to learn to listen. And I think I'm I'm a pretty good listener. There are many people out there who are far better than me, but I'm pretty good. And so I would urge anyone who's ever been in an orchestra, a rock band, a tap dancing group, a gospel choir, a choral society, I think dance and music particularly, if you've ever done any of those things, put it on your resume, your CV, because someone like me will pick it up and go, ah, this person can listen. They've been in a gospel choir for five years, 10 years, whatever it is, they can listen. Now, I can use that because wherever you go within your business, I don't care if it's finance or R&D or marketing or people, you will need to learn to listen. And most leaders and boards who I work with, none of them have had any listening training. And there isn't, to be fair, a massive amount out there. I've been very lucky that on top of my musical experience, I've learned with a gentleman called Richard Mullender, who is ex-Metropolitan Police in London, but he was a crisis and hostage negotiator. And his great learning was that when he was on the job, he suddenly realized all of what I do is about the quality of my listening. So, of course, you listen for facts and information, and then you go down the list and you're listening for emotion. Then you go down a little bit more, and can you listen for a person's values and beliefs just from what they say. And then, of course, you're listening for what are the mutual benefits that maybe most of us could get out of that. And in a crisis and hostage situation where it's life and death, his listening had to be at 10, 10 out of 10. Now, most of us aren't in that. But if we're at 8 or 9 out of 10, you will hear stuff you don't normally hear. And Richard works with people from all walks of life, and I was very lucky to be with him um, on various courses, and he's worked for me for what, uh, doing various things for clients. Uh, I would suggest that this idea of listening to yourself, as well as listening to others, and being a brilliant listener, and here we are on screen listening when we don't have all the the kind of physical tells of, uh, you know, is Jason bored? I can't quite see what he's doing. You know, is his knee jumping up and down? All this kind of stuff. You know, we've now haven't got that. So we've got to listen to the words and the language and watch the face, you know, in a much more sophisticated way. I think culture and also one's own dreams, one's own dreams are a lot to do with the quality of how we actually listen. How do we stop? One of the ways in which I listen is I keep a journal. Listen to myself, I should say. And that actually just gives me that little sort of hook of reflecting and thinking and listening to myself and going, oh, that didn't go so well, did it? Or that went, gosh, someone said that, how I should hold on to that. So that would be my one of my thoughts for you. Thank you very much, uh, Alistair. It's been it's been a whirlwind of learning for me, and it's been such a thought provoking conversation. So I thank you truly for the time you you've given us today. Oh, it's up! It's absolutely my pleasure. And your questions in our pre conversation and today have have made me think a little harder about a couple of things as well. So it's been an absolute mutual experience. So thank you. 
Well, folks, that was the brilliant and vivacious Alistair Creamer. In my thought-provoking conversation with him, we explored the power of resilience, culture, and personal growth. We've learned that when something truly matters, we can step up to any challenge, embracing change and being open to the experience that shapes us. Understanding the essence of who we are, our values, passions, and beliefs, well, it becomes a secret to facing change and challenges, both for individuals and organizations. And in the context of organizational culture, shaping clear and explicit signals is paramount. Whether it's through the consistent behavior of leaders as role models or effective communication, articulating expectations, these signals help us to bring the values to life. People must see the personal benefits, realize the significance, and experience the values in actions. By fostering an environment where values thrive, we forge stronger, united path forward. And Alistair, a personal thank you from me to you. Thank you for your generosity of time and sharing your wealth of experience, knowledge, and your creativity. It's truly, truly appreciated. Well, folks, if any of you are interested in getting in touch with Alistair, I will leave all his contact information in the show notes. And here we are, folks, at the tail end of yet another episode. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to share any feedback, I'm always open to it. So you'll find my contact information also in the show notes. So thank you for joining me for this extended conversation this week. Until the next time we meet, and until the next time we continue our conversation together. Keep well, keep strong, and we'll speak soon.